The passage of scripture that we will be looking at this morning is found in the third chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 3, and this morning we're looking at verses 5 through 17. <clears throat> Please give your attention to God's holy, powerful, inerrant word. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. One of several dreams that my wife and I fulfilled when we moved to State College just about exactly four years ago was the dream of home ownership. Before coming here through my entire adult life, I had always lived in houses that were owned by the church and maintained by the churches that I served. So I never owned a house. It was kind of like renting your whole life. And so it was probably naive on our part, but one of the things we really looked forward to moving up here was actually purchasing and owning our own home. Some of you were with us that day and helped us move in, and if you were, you will remember that the day that we moved into our house in Park Forest, it didn't go very well. About halfway through the day, the basement started flooding. And I still remember Dan Johnston by up to his knees in water, trying to keep everything else up above the water. And the recommendation was made that we call in the rotor rooter guys to come in and clean out the main drain pipe, the wastewater drain pipe from the house, because the thought was it was clogged and that was what was causing everything to back up. Well, they did find that that was part of the problem, but the real problem they found was that the main wastewater drain pipe leaving the house was actually broken behind the house and had to be dug up and repaired and re everything replaced. 
they told me it was going to cost $2,000. So much for the excitement of owning my own home. But that wasn't the lowest moment of the day. The lowest moment was actually, I would already was processing the cost of this repair, but at least I knew once the repair was made, the house would be in good shape again. So I'm sitting there processing the idea of the cost and the delay and everything this was going to cause. And the two Roto-Rooter guys were sitting with me making polite conversation on the, on the porch of my house. And one of them noticed that the, the porch of the house was just not quite level. And he felt compelled to point that out to me. And then that started kind of an insensitive rant on the part of these guys about how the houses built in that part of Park Forest in that era were built badly, they had shoddy workmanship, and here I am, this is my whole, this is my new house, and he's ripping it to shreds. Well, I'm glad to say that we love our house, we love our neighborhood, and we haven't had any significant problems with the house since that day, so there. (laughs) But what that experience did was help me to understand, it popped to mind as I started to really study this passage this week, because I think that experience helps me to understand how the Corinthian church felt when they read this portion of the letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to them. Because he's basically saying to them, matter of fact, he says it very distinctly, he says, you are God's building. And he goes on to say, you, he goes on to say you're, even you're, you're God's temple, but you're built very poorly. There's been some pretty shoddy workmanship done on you. And you've got some pretty serious flaws. We've already seen that working through the first three chapters. We have a lot more flaws in the church to see in the chapters to come. But remember back in chapter 1, he addressed the fact that it was a very divided church. In chapter 2, he addressed the fact that they had mixed in with the godly wisdom of God's word in their teaching and preaching. They had mixed in a lot of what he calls the wisdom of the world or more accurately the foolishness of the world. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, a couple weeks ago, we saw that the church was marked and characterized by spiritual immaturity. And so as he draws upon this analogy of the church being like a building, even a temple unto the Lord, what he's really saying in this letter is, you need to be fixed. There are some pretty serious flaws in the workmanship that's gone into making you where you are today. And as is usually the case, when there's serious flaws in the life of the church, the problem starts with the leadership. And so that's really who he's addressing here. There are lots of secondary applications in this passage to, the, to every believer. But the primary application, just keep that in mind as you're reading it, is to the leaders of the church. And he's trying to show them. Matter of fact, it's interesting to me that he doesn't write a separate letter to the leaders. He addresses the issues in the leadership in a letter that he's writing to the entire congregation. And I think what he's doing is he's seizing on this as a teaching moment to be able to not only address the problems with the leadership, but to teach God's people what to look for in leadership. Because it's so easy to start, to especially to look to the world's wisdom to see what's a leader and to put people who are impressive by the world standards into leadership in the church. And I don't know if that's what was happening here. This current presidential election season is showing me, at least, that there is a serious 
leadership crisis in our culture. People don't know how to choose a leader. Unlike most people who have ever lived, we get the privilege of choosing leaders. Almost everybody else that's lived in the history of the world has had leadership imposed upon them. We get to choose, but we're not choosing very well. It's because the general population has lost that concept of what leadership really is. But where is the general populace, where is the American culture going to learn what leadership looks like if the church isn't teaching it and showing it? We have to be an example to the world of what real leadership looks like, or else the world has no hope. It's something that the church has to get right, not just for its sake of its witness to the world, but for its own health and well-being. Harry Reeder is a pastor of a large PCA church down south and has been kind of a mentor from a distance to me. And he often says that a church will never rise to a higher level of spiritual maturity and impact upon its culture than the level of its leadership. So that when a church tries to recognize who are the leaders among us that God is calling and then puts those people in position, that the church is basically setting the ceiling for its own spiritual growth by who it puts in place as leaders. Because typically, churches do not grow any more spiritually mature or effective in service than their leaders are. It's a very humbling thing, especially for those of us who are leaders at any level in the church. And so let's go back to this question, because I really do think that that's the the issue that Paul is seeking to address in this passage, is how does the church build? And he deals with four aspects of leadership in this passage. First of all, he addresses a leader's perspective. And in this section, he uses not the analogy of a building, but he starts with an analogy about farming. And he talks about how is a leader in the church, at any level, to see himself in his work. Second issue he faces is, what is a leader's foundation? What is a builder who is building something, what is he building upon? What's the foundation of what you're doing? And then thirdly, what are the materials that the builder uses? What resources is the builder using in order to try to do the work he's been called to do, which is to build up the church? And then finally, what is a builder's reward? And that gets to the very motivation, and this is really crucial when it comes to leadership. What motivates somebody to be a leader in the church? What drives them? What are they after? What reward are they seeking? So let's look at the first one. And again, he's not talking about a building yet. He begins by talking about the, the process of farming. And he talks about what a leader's perspective is, a leader's perspective on himself and his work. In verse 5, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Remember, Paul was the one who started the church three years earlier, and Apollos was the one who followed Paul and came in and did some work of discipling and teaching and preaching after Paul was there. And so these are former pastors, so to speak, of the church in Corinth. And so he says to the Corinthian Christians, what then is Paul, Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Paul emphasizes that word, servants. Anytime he talks about leadership, that's the title he emphasizes. Matter of fact, servant is Paul's favorite title for himself. You go and look through every reference, when Paul makes a reference to himself or his ministry throughout the New Testament, he refers to himself over and over again as a servant. And so what that says to us is that a leader in the church today, if that is not your primary understanding of your role, then you should not be a leader. 
That's really what's distinctive about leadership in the church. That's what stands out as almost opposite to what the world calls leadership is the fact that we teach and practice servant leadership in the church. We understand leaders as those not who get their way and get to make all the calls and get to have things done the way they like it, but leaders are those who are seeking to build up others, to encourage and bless and hold accountable and nurture and disciple others. That's what leaders do. They are servants of the flock, servants of the church. Remember when Jesus' apostles were during his earthly ministry, jockeying for the positions in his his hierarchy. They wanted to be at the the places of honor in his kingdom. And this is how Jesus responded, these familiar words from Mark chapter 10, verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many how incongruous is it for a leader in the church who is supposed to be representing Jesus Christ to be out for himself to be looking for the church to serve his needs his desires his goals his purposes Because Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but came to serve even to the point of laying down his life for the sheep. So leadership in the church must reflect that self-sacrificial attitude of Christ. I am willing to spend all that I am and all that I have if I'm a leader in order to build up the church. Even lay down my life if that's what it requires of me to build up the church. That's how a leader thinks. You're servants of the church. I had an insight early in my ministry. Being the youngest of six kids, you tend to be, as the youngest, and those of you who are the youngest, you'll admit it with me, we're spoiled brats. We don't like having to do things for ourselves. We're used to being catered to. We're used to having things our way. We've been kids when our parents are old and worn out, and so they just kind of let us do our thing and go our own way. And so that, I went into the pastorate with that same kind of immaturity, that same kind of selfish attitude. And, you know, I still have these days. Don't think that I don't. But early in my ministry, especially, I had those days, I just was tired of people. You know, it's what we say among pastors. You know, it's great work if you can get it, except for the people you have to deal with. <laughs> and I just had, I had one of those days, one of those times where I was just really sick of the burden. I mean, I'm comforted by the fact that Paul had those days, too, because he talks about the burden of caring for people. And I just was having a bad day. It just happened to be the same day that we were having problems with the plumbing in our house, and we had to call a plumber in and, and come in and fix our plumbing for us. And I was so thankful when he's done, and that's the insight hit me. It's like, a pastor or an elder who complains about the problems that people have and the sinners they have that they have to deal with, it's kind of like a plumber complaining about leaky pipes. What if there weren't leaky pipes? Who would need a plumber? What if people didn't, sinners didn't have problems? You wouldn't need pastors and elders. So the very thing I'm complaining about is the very reason I was there was to help people, help sinners, to build up those looking for grace in Christ. A leader sees himself as a servant of the church. Another insight into how a leader sees it takes it actually a step further. Did you notice 
Paul says that a leader needs to see himself as nothing in and of himself. Nothing in and of himself. He says it in verses 6 and 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's a profound thing that Paul's saying about himself. The great Paul, the apostle of the church, is saying, I am nothing in and of myself. And anything of value in who I am and what I do is only because God is working in me and through me to do whatever I accomplish. The most important qualification for leadership in the church is godly character. And the most important trait of godly character is humility and dependence upon the Lord. Yes, Leaders need to be gifted, and they need to be skilled, and they need to be trained, and they need to work very hard, just like a farmer has to study and learn and get experience and work extremely hard. But at the end of the day, all of his plowing and fertilizing and planting and irrigating and weeding, all of it is worth nothing if God does not grow the plants. There is no harvest if God doesn't give the growth. And every leader in the church needs to look at his work that way. I need to be good at what I do, and I need to work hard at what I do, but everything I do is worthless unless God is in working in me and working through me. It's amazing how hard it is to keep that perspective when you're in leadership in ministry. It's helped me to kind of do a character study of Paul over all these years. When I first was introduced to Paul as a new Christian reading through the New Testament, he kind of, I don't know, put me off at first. I, I tended to read those passages like in 2 Corinthians where he's vigorously defending his authority, and I thought, well, he's kind of got a kind of a issue with arrogance there, doesn't he? You know, I, I mis- misread Paul. I misunderstood him because I didn't see the whole of Paul. I was only picking out several verses where he's rightly asserting his authority when it was challenged as an apostle. But then you begin to realize, alongside of that, this is, you get these kind of passages where Paul's saying, I'm nothing apart from Christ in me. I'm nothing. Let me give you a couple examples. Over in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, this is what Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God working with me. Do you hear that contrast between how he saw himself as a sinner saved by grace and as a leader compared to the power of Christ working in him and through him to do great things? Probably a better, and it's a little more extensive passage, but let me follow me through this passage in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3. I'm going to begin by reading in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we, now we here, he's speaking as the apostles and their associates, the leaders in the church. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Now flip over to chapter 4 and beginning verse, uh, in chapter, uh, that was chapter 3, over in verse 4, beginning verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is how Paul understood himself. He is just a a jar of clay fragile, breakable, worthless in and of itself. The only value that a jar of clay has is when treasure is poured into it. And so that's how a servant, a leader in the church, should see it. I want you to be impressed by Jesus in me, not by me. I want Jesus to be glorified by my life. I don't want you to be impressed with me because I am nothing unless Jesus is showing his glory through me as I preach and teach his word and disciple people in the word. That's how a leader needs to see himself. And you see this contrast between I can do great things. As Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I'm nothing if he's not working in me and through me. That's a tough balance for preachers and teachers and elders and ministry leaders and small group leaders and Bible study leaders and Sunday school teachers, it's hard for you to keep that perspective. But that's Paul's perspective. I am a servant and I'm nothing without the grace of God working in me. Secondly, what's a builder's foundation? Look at verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, there it is again, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul's talking about his unique ministry. Paul was a church planter, and as an apostle, he was a unique church planter to the Gentiles. And so he's changing the analogy here from farming to building a building. And if Paul's asking us to picture the process of building buildings, and he's basically presenting his ministry as being like someone who goes around and just builds foundations everywhere. You know, thinking about a new neighborhood at State College, and you're going to build a hundred new houses. He would go around, that was his specialty, he'd go around and build the foundations for all those houses and then expect other workers to come in behind him and build upon that foundation. We had a church just up the road from where I grew up that uh, they wanted to build a new church and they built a foundation and had like a fully, you know, a full operating basement, but they ran out of money and never were able to build above the foundation. And so that's, when you drove by, that's all you saw was a foundation there forever. I don't know if there is a building on that. Maybe today there is. But the point is, it was still a church. They still met there. It was still a church, even though it was just the foundation. But Paul understood that others would be coming in behind him to build on that foundation. He said in Romans 15, verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He was sent by God to bring the gospel to where the gospel had not been proclaimed before. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about Paul as a foundation builder is that every foundation that Paul built, no matter where he went, no matter what the circumstances, every foundation he built looked the same, identical. It looked like Jesus Christ, crucified, risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's what the foundation looks like. 
under a true church. And that's the kind of foundation that Paul built. In chapter 2, Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The entire ministry of Paul was built upon the gospel. The church in Corinth was built upon the gospel. Every church that Paul started was built upon the gospel. Every true church is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's saying nothing more than what Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now the beauty is you go to the rest of the New Testament and and actually Paul and and Peter and the other scripture writers build on this analogy of the foundation of the church being the gospel, and they specifically say, going back to Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus Christ is actually the cornerstone of the foundation. And there's so much rich imagery there, I wish we had more time to delve into it, but back in those days, when if you're building a building out of stone, and you start with a cornerstone, the cornerstone is crucial to the entire building process, because the cornerstone would set the size of all the other building stones. The cornerstone would set the location of the building. The cornerstone would set the orientation of the building. The cornerstone would set the size of the building. Everything was determined by the dimensions of the cornerstone. And so the New Testament writers tell us Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. And all the rest of the building is to be modeled after the cornerstone. That's how you build a good church. And so the message here that Paul is getting across to us, no matter whether we are foundation building or building upon the foundation that has been built by others, which is what we're doing here in this location, the important thing to the leadership is to say that your ministry, your leadership must be gospel-driven, gospel-centered, must be about Jesus Christ. The ministry must be about Jesus Christ. And it sounds like an overly simplistic test, but if, you've, if you're today looking for a new church and you're just checking us out, or if you're soon to be leaving here and going somewhere else in the country and you're going to start looking for a church, it may sound simplistic, but I will say that it's a very good indicator of how good the church is, how, how spiritually mature the church is, how much you hear about Jesus Christ in any given service or class or just in casual conversation. The scriptures are the basis of the church of what we teach. And the scriptures, Jesus said, are about him. They're about Jesus Christ. So a scriptural church, a church built upon the word of God, is a church built upon who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that means for us in the world today. That's the foundation of the church. Thirdly, what are the builder's materials? What do you, those who are building upon the foundation, what materials are they to use? And Paul gets metaphorical again, and he talks about the leaders of the church building on the foundation of the gospel with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. And there's been all kinds of speculation in the history of the church about what those different types of building materials might represent. I think it's as simple as he's giving two kinds of building materials. Basically, those six different types he mentions can be boiled down to two different types of building materials. First type is valuable, durable, and permanent. 
gold, silver, and precious stones. And since, as he's going to say in a moment, he's talking about building a temple. The building in particular he's talking about is a temple to God that he's talking probably about marble. So he's talking about gold and silver and marble and you think of what the temple was in the first century. Or you can build with wood, hay, and straw, which are cheap, combustible, and temporary. He's saying to the leadership, what are you building with? Are you building with what is valuable, durable, and permanent, or are you building with what is cheap, combustible, and temporary? To build with gold and silver and precious stones, the scriptural analogy there, the biblical metaphor for those kinds of things is the word of God. The word of God is more precious than gold and silver. The word of God is more precious than precious stones. That if you want to build a ministry, you need to build it by making disciples in the word of God. That's the building material we use. I think you can broaden it to the things we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The means of grace, the sacraments, prayer, the fellowship of God's people. These are the things that humble, godly leaders use to build the church. But there's always that temptation to go out to the world to get some of the foolishness of the world and bring it into the church to try to appeal to the fools out in the world. It is always a temptation to the leadership to use techniques and programs and gimmicks from the world to try to build the church and then define the church by how many people you're drawing in from the world. And it can very well be wood, hay, and straw. You see, building with wood, hay, and straw can be impressive for a while. Matter of fact, for a long while. And it may look very successful for a while. But Paul says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Especially for leaders. But this applies to any believer. But especially for leaders... When Jesus Christ returns, and he is coming back, when he comes back, the language of scripture is he's coming back with fire. Now, I don't mean literal fire, probably, but the fires of God's judgment. First, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that the material universe will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's what's going to happen, is that the quality of the work that is done in the church is going to be exposed for what it is. Is it made of gold and silver and precious stones or is it made of wood, hay, and straw? In other words, does it pass through the fire and... Remain, or does it get burned up and turn to nothing? You've probably seen houses that burn up, and all that's left is a foundation and maybe a stone fireplace. And that's what it's going to look like for some churches. That if the gospel is held to and preached, then the foundation is there. But so little of what it's doing is really of the Lord and endures for eternity. There's a sad picture in this text of a leader in the church who worked his entire life. And when the day of judgment comes and Christ returns, 
says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What a sad day to think that you spent your whole life in ministry, in leadership, in serving others, supposedly, but yet, truly, inwardly, it was building with wood, hay, and straw, and it was all burned up, and you have nothing to show for it. Now, what this indicates is that it's possible to be saved and not get the reward. See, this is a distinction, and we Christians wrestle with this. There's a distinction in the, in the scripture between salvation by grace, and then once we are saved by grace, the way that the grace of God works in us is that we begin to serve faithfully, and we begin to obey, and we begin to do things for the glory of God. And as we are faithful in service, we are rewarded for that service. It's all a work of grace, but there is distinctions in reward for those who are saved, given eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with God by grace alone. There are rewards according to how we serve. That's a consistent teaching of the New Testament. And Paul alludes to it here. In verse 8, he says, each one will receive wages according to his labor. Verse 14, if, that, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And what this says is, this is just a truth about life in general. I don't care whether you're a leader or just an ordinary serving Christian at the lowest level. It doesn't matter where you are in the life of the church. You are driven by a desire for reward. We're wired to do that. We want reward. We have to live for something better in the future. So what is the reward you're seeking? What do you want? And for a leader, what Paul is saying is, that reward has to be something that is eternal. Humble, Christ-like leaders are driven to acquire eternal rewards. They aren't looking for notoriety in this life. They're not looking for comfort in this life. They're not looking for prosperity in this life. They are looking for eternal rewards. That should be true of all of us, but especially for those who lead us. I'm always fascinated when the New Testament talks about rewards. How many of you really know what those are? I mean, that's kind of a frustrating study of the New Testament, isn't it? It talks about rewards all the time for God's people, but it doesn't describe them. Matter of fact, it uses a bunch of metaphors. Talks about treasures in heaven. Talks about crowns talks about, you know, houses, mansions, whatever. These are, these are pictures, but they aren't really the rewards, because honestly, when I get to heaven, I hope there isn't just a mantle there with like six trophies on it or something. That's not what I'm, you know, if that's what I'm serving for, that's not what it's all about. And so I've really wondered about that. You know, I think part of the reason the scripture doesn't tell us what the rewards are is because they're more wonderful than our imaginations could possibly contain. But I think the other reason is that we already have them to some degree. If you're in ministry, if you've poured your life into anyone else, if you've mentored anybody else, if you've led anybody to Christ, if you've taught anybody the word of God, if you have been an example to anybody, if you have been involved in any level of ministry, you know that there's reward that you get immediately and that you experience in this life. And I think that's what the eternal rewards look like, just in a much more glorious fashion. I had a taste of this a couple months ago. I had a chance to go back to my former church in the suburbs of Philly, and uh, they had asked me to come back and preach for the ordination service. And this was a very special moment for me because it was a young man who came into the church about 10, 12 years ago when I was there. And I, I worked with him closely. Uh, we, had, we, we 
studied the scriptures together. We ended up uh, co-leading a Bible study with him, eventually led him into being an elder in the church, and then he did online seminary training and graduated from his online seminary training, got, passed his exams at Presbytery, and was now being ordained and installed as an assistant pastor at that church. And so it was a great joy for me to come back and preach for that ordination service back in January. But when I got there, I mean, there was so much joy for me to see him, to see how the grace of God has been working in him and building him and making him not only a leader, but now a preacher and a minister of the word in the church. That was very gratifying to me. But to go back after four years and see the church that I invested 19 years of my efforts into and that I worked along with the other elders there to build, to, to grow, and to be, help it become spiritually mature as a congregation, to look at where it is four years later when I haven't been there and watch it continue to grow and watch it get stronger and get bigger impact in ministry, I have to say to you, I have not known a more satisfying, fulfilling moment in my ministry than that moment to see what God was doing, how that church was being built on the same foundation and growing and expanding. I can't imagine a better reward than that. And I really think that's what eternity is going to be, is looking around at all of the work of ministry that we've done. I'm not talking just to leaders here, any of you, any kind of ministry you've done, how that's going to endure through Judgment Day into eternity, and you're going to be able to look at it and say, by God's grace, I was a part of that. The Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my spiritual children, he's talking about, my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy. That is the great reward of ministry. And so, as I said, it applies to all of you. So let me ask you, what are you building with your life? What are you using to build and what are you building with your life? And how much of it's going to remain after Christ comes again, which could happen fairly soon? How much of this is going to remain? What's going to be important after Judgment Day? And then I can't conclude without pointing out the ominous warning that's at the end of this passage. Paul reminds the church, says, you are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of you. You are, the church, are the temple of the living God. And then he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Do you know what he's saying there? He's not talking about that guy who built poorly on the foundation anymore, who all his work was burned up, but he was saved as through fire. He's not talking about that guy anymore. He's talking about the guy who destroys the foundation. He's talking about the false teacher in the church who comes in and refuses to preach the gospel, refuses to live out the gospel, points people away from Christ crucified and risen from the dead, points to other gods, other beliefs about Jesus, other beliefs about the cross, who destroys that foundation that Paul and the apostles have built. That false teacher, according to scripture, and I'll take you to 2 Peter sometime to back it up, the deepest, darkest, most horrific pits in hell are reserved for those who are false teachers in the name of Jesus Christ. Those who destroy the foundation of the church and undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ come under the greatest condemnation on Judgment Day. Those are the people Paul's addressing here. If you destroy the church, God will destroy you forever. Let me end on a more positive note. God blesses churches where the leaders are humble, gospel-centered, disciple-makers who seek eternal rewards.
That's the kind of church that God blesses, that has that kind of leadership. Pray for your leaders. Pray that they would become and stay those kinds of leaders by God's grace. And pray for God to raise up more leaders like that. Because as God raises up leaders, the church grows and the impact of the church grows in the community. This church will never rise any higher than the level that is set by its leadership. Pray for your leaders and pray for leaders to be raised up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those who have faithfully served in leadership here and elsewhere in the Church of Jesus Christ in the times, the generations before this. We thank you, Lord, for how you have faithfully provided for your church those that would build your church according to the means that the Holy Spirit gives. Father, I pray that all of us would apply this to our lives, even if we're not leaders at any level in the church. I pray, Lord, that we would seek to be building through the word of God and through the spirit, buildings, efforts that will last through the day of judgment and bring eternal reward. We long for that day to come soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.